Welcome to episode 15 of the Aquascaping Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Art, and joining us today, as usual, is Sean. Check us out at aquascapingpodcast.com. Send your comments and questions to aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe and rate on iTunes. Today is going to be part one of our series on CO2 in the Planted Aquarium. Aquariums have been around since the Roman Empire, and since then, there's been incremental changes and advancements in the hobby. But it wasn't until recently that pressurized CO2 was introduced into the Planted Aquarium. It was this technology that marked a quantum leap forward for aquascapers. It's said that when Takashi Amano was at his lowest point and frustrated, he put soda water into the aquarium just to see what would happen. And to his amazement, he observed the plants begin to photosynthesize. Like the apple that struck Newton's head, Amano's soda water led to the realization that would propel his nature aquarium forward and subsequently pave the way for future hobbyists. But pressurized CO2 is virtually unknown to the general public as a supplement for planted aquariums. And to a beginning aquascaper, a CO2 regulator can seem like an exotic and overly expensive piece of equipment. But a quality CO2 regulator can be the single most important item an aquascaper can obtain, leading to a successful and flourishing aquascaping journey. The topic of CO2 is a complicated one, and uh, there's some, some room for interpretation, uh, but we're going to do our best here on the show to break it down to its most simplest forms and cover everything you need to know about CO2 and how to use it in your aquascape. So the goal is to dissolve CO2 into the water so that the plants can utilize it. And the first step in this process is to get CO2 and to contain it somehow into some sort of cylinder or tank. Here in the United States, it's easy to obtain a 5 or 10 pound CO2 cylinder, which is most commonly used for beer dispensing. Now, once we have the CO2 in the cylinder, it's going to be pressurized to about 800 or so PSI. Now, that's pretty high. We can't blast that into the tank uh, unless you want to just blow all the water right out of your aquarium. That's what a regulator does. It allows us to take that high pressure CO2 of 800 or so PSI all the way down to a working pressure more suitable for what we're trying to do, typically around 30 PSI or lower. The next step is the needle valve, and that allows you to fine tune how much CO2 is coming from the regulator in the cylinder and going into the aquarium. To allow you to visually see how much CO2 is actually leaving the needle valve, we use what's called a bubble counter. And that's typically just a glass tube of some sort that's filled three quarters of the way or so with water so that we can see the bubbles passing through it and allow us to gauge how many bubbles per second of CO2 we're letting into the tank. Finally, we want to keep that CO2 in the water as long as possible. So we don't want just one big bubble flying up to the surface and dissipating. We want to diffuse it somehow or use an atomizer to break it up into small bubbles, keeping them in the water uh, for a long time and allowing it to dissolve so that the plants can utilize it. Now, we don't want to run CO2 at night when the lights are off. Uh, the plants won't really utilize it and we can gas our fish. So we need to turn the system off. And to automate this process, most setups have what's called a solenoid. And you can think of that really as just a gate. And when it's plugged in, the gate opens and allows CO2 to run through the system. And when it's unplugged, 
the gate closes and it stops the CO2 flow altogether. Now luckily we don't have to manually unplug it and plug it in every day, just set them up into timers and automate that entire process. Hey, what's up everyone? Sean here and I'm going to try to tackle CO2 today. It is something I have been probably avoiding for a little while because uh, it's talked about a lot. We talk about it a lot and it can be a difficult topic for a number of reasons and one of those being it is uh, quite a challenge to determine the levels of CO2 in our tanks. And so with that, there are a lot of different methods. Uh, for diffusing CO2, for measuring CO2, uh, but all in the end, uh, I think all of these different methods work. It's just a matter of making whichever method you've chosen to work for you and for your aquascape. And so let's dive right in and try to tackle CO2 in today's episode. For those listeners out there who've never used CO2 or, or are considering using CO2, let's just begin with some very simple CO2 basics. And I think the most important place to start is some just basic safety considerations. Uh, CO2 is very safe. Uh, the regulators are are good. The, usually, as long as you're getting your, your tank refilled, it's getting checked for any leaks or issues like that. So it's generally really safe. And it's funny because when I first started working with a CO2 regulator and a pressurized CO2 cylinder, I was really nervous. I mean, I felt like I was some type of, I was constructing a bomb or something. You know, I was nervous that I'm going to do something wrong. I'm going to open the valve wrong. I'm going to not screw the regulator on tight enough or something's going to happen. And I'm going to end up with this cartoon-like a metal canister flying around my home breaking everything in sight and possibly injuring myself and uh, the more I worked with CO2 the more familiar I became with it the more comfortable I became with it and with comfort sometimes complacency can also set in but I think um, I became or I understood more about how it works and that it is really um, very safe to use as long as you're doing things right. And one of the most important things is to make sure that your cylinder is going to stay upright when in use. Uh, so with that, you should probably consider using a strap or something like that inside the cabinet to keep it upright if it's not going to stay upright on its own or there's a risk of it tipping over. The reason for this is as the tank empties or if you're putting on a heavy regulator on the side of say a five pound CO2 uh, canister, it could potentially tip over. And if it tips over, you know, you risk either the regulator popping loose or the neck breaking. Uh, again, it's going to take quite a bit of force to do that. These things are well constructed. Uh, for safety reasons, but you don't want to risk it. And so be sure you strap uh, the tank up if there is a risk of it tipping over. Uh, now I'm definitely much more conscientious of even canisters, uh, cylinders inside my aquarium cabinets. I have a nearly two-year-old son that's running around and thankfully he doesn't try to get into the uh, cabinets too much. But if he ever were to, uh, I really don't want him meddling with the pressurized CO2 and so I definitely prevent um, those from being opened unless I want them open and I'm there to open them. 
So that's another thing to consider is if you have small children or even sometimes pets could uh, accidentally knock over cylinders or fiddle with your equipment. So um, just keep that in mind when you're setting it up and when you're uh, putting it in a location. All right, let's talk about transporting CO2 cylinders. Say you have a new one or you're running low on CO2 and you need a refill. What are some things we need to think about when transporting it? Now, I have a five-pound cylinder, which gets filled to about 840 PSI, which is pretty typical. And I looked up what about 840 PSI is equivalent to, and it's about the same as a Mike Tyson knockout punch. Now, I don't think any of us want to get hit by a Mike Tyson knockout punch. That would be pretty devastating. Even more devastating is getting hit by that punch while driving. So right off the bat, that's something we have to look out for. Now, before we go too far, all the cylinders, at least here in the US, are required to have a relief valve. And that relief valve is so that the pressure inside the cylinder can't get high enough to actually explode it or crack it. Before that happens, the relief valve is gonna pop and let all of the CO2 out of the cylinder. Now, when that happens, that's gonna be a loud pop followed by a lot of loud hissing. So that in itself is gonna be a huge distraction while driving, uh, coupled with the fact that your car is now being filled very rapidly with CO2. And that's not a good situation when you're on the road. So for all these reasons, you never ever wanna keep the CO2 cylinder in the passenger seat or in the back seat. You want that strapped in the trunk, strapped to something so it can't move, put it on a towel uh, or a couple blankets so you could cushion it a little bit, keep it back there. That way, if anything happens, nothing's flying out and hitting you, breaking a window. Uh, and if that valve does, pop for some reason. And again, this is a very unlikely situation. So I don't mean to be scaring anybody out there, but these are things that we should be thinking about because it is a possibility. And if that happens and it is in the trunk, uh, you'll have more time to you know orient yourself, pull over, uh, open up the windows and uh, check everything out before you move on. Another thing to keep in mind is that the pressure inside the cylinder is affected greatly by the outside temperature. For example, if we have our cylinder filled up at room temperature to 840 PSI, by the time we get to only 88 degrees Fahrenheit or 31 degrees Celsius, we've already risen to 1100 PSI. And at 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 49 degrees Celsius, we've risen up to 2000 PSI, which is already high enough to pop the relief valve. A car sitting in the sun on a hot day can easily reach 120 degrees Fahrenheit. By the time we get to 155 degrees Fahrenheit or 68 degrees Celsius, uh, we've risen to 3000 PSI, which is well above what the relief valve is going to pop at. So you don't want to make any unnecessary stops on the way home. You don't want to leave that cylinder in the car, especially on a hot day. One last thing, when you get it home, wait about an hour or so to let the cylinder acclimate to the room's temperature. Uh, like we said, temperature is gonna affect the pressure inside the cylinder. You want everything to stabilize first before you hook up your regulators and set your working pressures. Again, I just wanna emphasize the CO2 cylinders are very safe to use. That's what they're built for. They've been drop tested, pressure tested. They're used all over the world. Uh, so they're very safe and you should feel confident in using them. That being said, it's always good to educate yourself and be prepared. 
Let's talk regulators and the differences between the two. I'm not going to get highly technical about the inside workings of these regulators, uh, but the differences between single stage and dual stage regulators in terms of how they perform for your aquascape, for your setup and for your CO2 system. So with that, the most common versions of regulators that we will see out there are single stage regulators. Uh, these have um, only one mechanism inside that regulates the pressure. You'll see there are two gauges on the top. One of those is working pressure. So that is the pressure and uh, that is in going into your CO2 line. And with that, generally many regulators, you can regulate the working pressure. You can turn it up or down, which is good because in some cases you may need more or less. Uh, particular cases where you need more are if you're running uh, CO2 atomizers that require uh, a higher but still low working pressure of 30 PSI to, to get the CO2 to diffuse through the atomizer. In different setups, things that are maybe using a reactor or a glass diffuser, you don't need as much working pressure. And so it's good to have that adjustable. If you have a regulator where you cannot adjust the working pressure, this is more of a flow regulator than a pressure regulator. And the reason for that is just because you cannot adjust the working pressure of the regulator. The other gauge that you see is going to have larger numbers on it. Uh, and this is going to show you the tank pressure. So this is going to show you the amount of gas you have inside your cylinder. With a single stage regulator, as you see that pressure begin to drop, um, you're going to notice that there's a change in your bubble rate. Now there are very good single stage regulators and there are very poor single stage regulators. And so I think with CO2 equipment, it always does pay to try and get the best you can within your budget. Because, for example, a very good single stage regulator, while it's still going to have a bubble rate increase, and I'm sorry there are folks out there that will say that you can get single stage regulators that will not do an end of tank dump. That is technically true. But what, it what will still happen is you will still see a change in your bubble rate as the tank empties. And so you may need to adjust your CO2 if you're going to and keep an eye on it if you're going to continue to run that tank uh, till it's completely empty. Generally, I'd recommend just swapping it out so you don't have to fiddle with your needle valve, readjust your CO2, and get a rate again that works for uh, the pressure that's currently in the cylinder because it's going to change as that tank empties, and you're going to need to probably look at it you know, daily to maintain uh, a good consistent CO2 level without getting ex excessive amounts within your tank. So that is, that is what a single stage regulator uh, can have happen as the pressure drops in the CO2 cylinder as it empties. And this happens once you start to see the needle on the cylinder pressure gauge start to drop. So that's when you'll start to see that bubble rate change. Basically, the difference between a single stage and a dual stage is that a dual stage regulator will not have that change in uh, bubble rate after the cylinder starts to empty. A dual stage regulator has two mechanisms within within the regulator that regulates the pressure. And so it's able to better control for changing tank or cylinder pressure uh, as it empties. And so it doesn't affect uh, the bubble rate 
quite as drastically or if at all. Again, this will depend also upon the quality of the regulator and how well it does so. Uh, but in general, many dual stage regulators will not have this issue. And that's uh, one of the great benefits to having and using a dual stage regulator. There are a couple other components to a good CO2 system. Uh, the first one is being the uh, solenoid. This allows you to plug your CO2 system into a timer and then automatically turn on or off the CO2 supply. The other item is the needle valve and a good quality needle valve is almost worth its weight in gold. This is going to allow you to dial in your bubble rate and the better quality of needle valve you have, the easier it is going to be to adjust and the more likely or consistent it's going to remain over time. Just like regulators, needle valves come in varying qualities and capabilities and what you really want is one that uh, is easily adjustable, one that uh, does not require very fine tuning to get the difference between one and two bubbles per second if you just barely touch it and you see that the bubble rate is changing that makes it very difficult to adjust and so you want a valve that requires a lot of movement to make small adjustments in the bubble rate this will make it easier for you to adjust the bubble rate so I guess the point of this part is that the quality of the pieces uh, are going to depend upon how much you want to pay and, and what you'll get. I think in general there are some cases in this hobby where you'll find yourself paying more and not necessarily getting more, but when it comes to CO2 equipment, especially if you're building your own regulator, um, getting the right parts and the right pieces will get you the best performance and sometimes those are going to cost a little cost a little more, uh, but they will um, they will help you get a more consistent bubble rate and uh, more consistent results from your CO2 system. Okay, so what should I get? A single stage, a dual stage? How much money should I spend? These are all questions that could be jumbling around in your head. If you go on the forums, it's just a quagmire. People are all over the place, both sides of the camp. Some people say just get a dual stage, single stage isn't worth it. Ah, it's ridiculous. I, if you get a good quality regulator, single stage or dual stage, you're going to be good. Here's the main difference in the real practical working world. Not the forum world, not the theory world. On paper, a dual stage obviously is superior to a single stage. But in everyday real world life, here's the main difference. When you start to see that pressure drop on a single stage, just go get it refilled. You got about a week go get that thing refilled before it starts to drop and get towards the end. And you will never run into problems. The problems are going to happen when you let that thing go all the way down to the end. Your bubble rates are going to change. You might get an end of tank dump. That's when you see problems. So as soon as you start to see that pressure go down, go get it refilled. You'll never have a problem. Now, if you're away from your aquascape, you know, days at a time, weeks at a time, if you travel a lot, if work kind of takes you away from home for a while, then it, it makes sense to invest in a dual stage so you have that kind of fail safe. It's, it's going to save you in the event that you miss when that pressure starts to drop and you don't have the time to go get that refilled. And you're not going to save any money by you know uh, letting getting a dual stage and then letting that gas run all the way to the end. It's not like you're really uh, saving any money on the actual CO2 gas. I have a five-pound cylinder. It's been running over six months. And like I said, when that pressure starts to drop, I only have about a week left. 
So, and it only cost me 20 to $25 to get it refilled. That lasts over six months. That last week of time is only pennies. So I'm not like, uh, it's not like I'm losing money on getting that filled prematurely. So how much money should I expect to spend on a, on a good regulator? You know, well, you could build your own. There's always that option of building your own rig. But if you're not inclined to do something like that, it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of research. You're going to be waiting for parts. Um, you know, you have to put it together. You might have to troubleshoot. There's a, it could be a lot of trouble if you're not that kind of a person that would have done that kind of project in the first place. Uh, if you're just trying to save money, but you're not that kind of person to create something or build something like that, you might run into a lot of trouble trying to create it. Once you've already built one or two, in hindsight, it's very easy to say, oh, it's easy to put together. Just do this, this, and this. But if it's your first time, if you've never even done something like that before, you don't understand the inner workings of a regulator, that could be uh, spelling trouble for you. It might be better just to invest the money in a company who does this for a living and can create it for you and can back up that product in the event that something's wrong with it. Okay, so how much should I spend on this? Well, I'll just tell you what I spent on mine, uh, about 220 on the regulator, about $50 on the cylinder, and about $30 on the atomizer. So all together, I was around $300, and I'm set up, and I'm happy with everything, everything works great, and I'm confident that I'm going to have this for a long time. Well, let's cross our fingers on that. But you could certainly spend a lot more money than that. You could spend less. But if you're going to spend less, I would just expect to run into some troubleshooting. You might have some leaks, some bubble rate fluctuations. Maybe your needle valve isn't going to be as good. So it's worth spending that little extra amount more, even if that means saving up for a couple months. Uh, if you have to save up for a long time, you know, and, and you just can't do it right now, there is a DIY option. You can go into that. Sean definitely dislikes DIY with good reason. Um, but it could be an option for somebody who has to save up for a while and just wants to get going. I'm going to go into DIY CO2 in the next part, in the next uh, episode here on CO2. I'll tell you my experience with the citric acid method and how that works. Uh, Again, that's an option for somebody who maybe has to save up for a while. Um, In the beginning of Aquascape setups, getting your CO2 right is really, really important. And it's going to help get your system off to the best start. Uh, An example of when I had struggled with getting my CO2 right, and I think I mentioned it in another earlier episode, um, I had my one of my flow valves, which is an inline way of controlling the flow of CO2 um, to a system if you're branching it off, I had it backwards. And I didn't realize that, and I just kept struggling trying to get the bubble rate right. Either it was too much or there was just not enough. And with that, I got some uh, algae and some poor growth in the beginning of this aquascape that I wouldn't have gotten probably otherwise or it would have been uh, shorter lived because I was having this problem with CO2. In the long run, you'll appreciate having spent a little extra, I think, on getting a good CO2 setup because of the ease of use um, and the reliability. And those are the things that you're getting when you're getting a really good needle valve, a really good regulator, um, and a good solenoid. Uh, The solenoid is a a part I hadn't talked about yet. The solenoid is the thing that is going to turn your regulator uh, on or off, or it's going to allow gas to flow 
um, when you want it or when you need it. And so uh, I really recommend running your lights on a timer and your CO2 on a timer. I try to talk a lot about using our instincts in growing plants, learning good horticulture and following what our gut tells us is going on with our aquariums. And with that, I think CO2 is one of those things where you just have to learn how to do it well. You have to fail, you have to make mistakes, and you also have to learn what does it look like when I have poor CO2 supply. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about what do plants look like if we're getting poor CO2 supply. There are some plants that uh, will show signs before other plants do. Some of this is because they are not as good at uptaking CO2. Another reason is may, maybe because they have higher growth rates and a greater CO2 demand. And so if CO2 becomes limiting, they're gonna be the first ones to feel that pressure uh, and to have poor growth because of it. One of the most common signs, uh, particularly in stem plants of poor CO2 supply is stunted tips. What you'll see is this tapering off of the growth of the stems. Um, say a few centimeters down, the plant's leaves are wider, um, they look nice, and then your new growth tip looks stunted or misshapen. This sometimes can be a sign of, of various nutrient deficiencies, but most often this is a sign that you lack CO2. Another sign of poor CO2 supply uh, for your tank is going to be the appearance of algae. And one thing that I have noticed in tanks with an unstable supply of CO2 uh, in tanks that need CO2 at a stable level is staghorn or some brush algaes. And what I have noticed in my tanks, particularly my 90 centimeter tank, um, is that if we are getting our timing off, so maybe our aquarium reaches good levels at some point, but particularly in the beginning phases of the light cycle, we may have not enough CO2, which I think is the most critical time to have adequate levels of CO2. Uh, if that happens, I start to see brush and staghorn algae show up in my tanks. And there have been multiple repeated times where this has happened because I have two timers. One timer is on the light that runs when the light turns on and when it turns off. The other timer is part of uh, an Aqua Controller Junior. It, it's just a fancy timer, basically. It's, it's an aquarium controller, but I use it as a timer to run a couple pumps and my CO2. Well, the clocks on each of these diverge over time. And so as the light seems to move ahead faster than the light uh, or the time on the co2 controller and so what i end up happening is the light comes on earlier and earlier and the co2 starts to come on later and later and so now my timing is getting thrown off and if i don't remember to reset those clocks every once in a while to make sure that they're close together my timing is off and i start to see the emergence of staghorn and brush algae it happens like clockwork because of the clocks, uh, and, and I've seen that. There are other reasons to get those algaes, um, but I think in, in tanks that require CO2 and a good supply of CO2, that um, those algaes can be a sign of poor CO2 timing and instability. Uh, so another thing that can lead to instability is maybe, um, maybe you're degassing 
too much or over time you start to degas more CO2. Uh, if the water level drops, let's say over the course of a week, towards the end of the week, um, before you do your water change, your water level is lower and you have a, a more surface agitation. So your your bubble rate may not be sufficient enough to keep up with that increased surface agitation. So your, your um, total CO2 concentration may not be enough to, um, to make your plants happy. All right, everybody, that's this week's episode of the Aquascaping Podcast. This was part one of our CO2 series. We went over the basics today and some safety concerns and issues with using pressurized CO2. In part number two, we're going to go into more of timing, injection rates, bell curves, all sorts of stuff, uh, and how to use CO2 effectively and efficiently in our aquascapes for success. If you have comments or questions, please send them to aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com. Check us out on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and rate. Uh, and you can check out our website, aquascapingpodcast.com. Have a good week, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Let's go.